Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Penny Lane podcast. On today's show, we've got a special guest. It's Jared Tendler. He's going to talk about removing emotions from decision making, his mental game system, dealing with previous trading trauma, and much more surrounding the psychology of trading. Do not miss this episode. It's brought to you by Penny's Going In Raw and Aries. Don't forget to subscribe to the Penny Lane podcast on YouTube as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Enjoy. The stock market is hotter than ever right now, and traders are taking advantage. But what does that mean for the people who still haven't started trading? The market can be a little intimidating at first, but you don't have to be alone in the learning experience. We at the Pennies Going In Raw podcast are here to help you. I'm Dan, and with my co-host, Hugh Henney, we make the stock market a fun but informative experience for our listeners. We offer knowledge for all levels of traders, from beginners to those who do it full-time. On PGIR, we discuss up-to-date news about the stock market and interview other traders who all started out just like us and made it big. You'll hear from Hugh and other multi-millionaire traders, founders and CEOs of companies, FinTwit superstars, and even professional athletes. Have you ever thought about investing your hard-earned cash but don't know where to start? Do you have money just sitting in your savings account collecting dust? We were all there once too. Listen to Pennies Going In Raw on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jared, hi. Welcome to the Penny Lane Podcast. How yeah. are you? Thanks, man. It's uh, great to meet you. So nice to meet you. I just am thrilled to have you on here. I just put out a little tweet that I wanted to talk to a poker player, and here we are. Here we go. So... You're not just a poker player. Could you regale us with some of your accomplishments? Well, I'm actually, I wouldn't say that I'm a poker player. I've been a poker coach for, for oh, 14 years. Even better. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so I started in the world of golf because I wanted to play professional golf myself. Amazing. And- I ran into some mental hangups trying to qualify for the U.S. Open for, you know, kind of big national events. And I won, you know, nine tournaments in college, was a three-time All-American Division Three. But there's a big difference between that and, you know, playing in a U.S. Am, a U.S. Open. So uh, I was not able to find answers in traditional sports psychology. And so I decided rather than just try to become a professional and, you know, spend 200K uh, attempting it, um, I decided to get a master's degree in counseling psychology. I'm technically a licensed therapist, but I've never practiced. Once I got my license in 2005, I quit my job, flew to Arizona, and started building up a golf practice, working with golfers, uh, avid junior golfers, amateurs, some professionals. Had a gal one on, had a, a gal one on the uh, LPGA tour. Uh, but then I met a po- professional poker player uh, who used to be a professional golfer, and this was in 2007. Uh, online poker was really beginning to boom. And he was making twenty to thirty thousand dollars a month, but he had massive tilt issues, right? So he would get really angry uh, because of the variance involved in the game, and w- was he had literally had a pile of com- broken computer equipment in the in the corner of his room. And so over the four months that he and I started working together, he made six hundred k, and fair to say he was excited. And he w- was part owner in an online training site that was teaching other people how to play poker. So he kind of introduced me to the world and all of a sudden, you know, here I am kind of battling up against all the other kind of golf psychologists uh, in that space. And there's literally nobody in poker. And so, uh, yeah, I just kind of had open runway, uh, wrote the mental game of poker in 2011, mental game of poker two in 2013. And then traders started picking up the poker books saying, well, you just changed the word poker to trading. and You've got another book. 
And so I began working with traders, some institutional firms, uh, and yeah, just kind of building up a roster of, of trading clients. And then in 2015, I started working uh, with Team Liquid, one of the largest esport organizations in the world. I know Liquid. Kind of head of head of, uh, of sports psychology for them. And so now I've got like a roster of PGA Tour players, traders, esport athletes, uh, professional uh, poker players, institutional traders, and then I've got you know kind of random sports betters and uh, a radiologist, lawyer, uh, <laughs> whole mixed bag. But basically, the bottom line is I help people to remove the emotion around their decision making and their performance. This is incredible. So okay, okay. So Alice gives me so much shit because I don't do any research before the podcast. And this is why, Ellis, have, did you see how excited <laughs> I, was, I was? Yeah, your, your jaw dropped. so <laughs> excited. And the, you're like the exact person I've been wanting to talk to. And I just took a recommendation, but hello. I have so many <laughs> nice questions. Nice to meet you. So many questions. <laughs> I'm obsessed with golf. I've got a viral campaign going to try to interview Bubba Watson, my favorite golfer um He's pretty pretty nice i mean i'm i'm shocked that you haven't been able to do that yet also i went to georgia so go dogs um so oh, I, will, I will say i mean this is a little bit of a name drop but next time i'm at a tour event i will if he's there i will i will I was going to explode. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen how hard I've been trying? I said that I would give away a Nintendo Switch if someone could get him to come on the podcast. Like, I love Bubba. Um, I just went to the PGA at Kiowa yeah. and followed him around for three days. What a classy man. I mean, he just... Yeah. And then his um, caddy left him they had a little breakup and now he's got the new caddy and the caddy's a golf coach i'm so deep i'm so deep into this world thrilled to meet you i'm obsessed with the psycho the intersection of playing golf and trading and i actually couldn't find someone who was specifically like could speak to that which is how i was like well poker is like golf which is like trading so mm -hmm. that's how i went there Try oh fetching. my goodness gracious! I'm just thrilled. So, um, okay, so golf and trading. I love that intersection because it's a game you play against yourself, right? Poker is different, yes or no? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think yes. You have your. There's a, certainly more reliance on uh, your competitors, uh, and so yes, there's not. I mean golf course is your opponent yeah, i mean any any pga tour player will say you know back nine on sunday uh your opponents are the ones that you're trying to beat and so it kind of becomes twofold and yeah and trading your opponent is the market i mean unless you're like a massive uh institutional trader right you're rarely kind of knowing who's on the other side and betting against specific people it's much more of a market driven so yeah i think that 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 parallel aligns quite well did you see the, did you watch the full arc of the Masters this year? Heck yeah. What's the guy's name who won? Uh, Scotty Schiffler. Schiffler. So Bubba's caddy is now working with Scotty Schiffler. Okay. And that mental fortitude to be in the lead of the Masters for four days and then keep it together on Sunday. People fall apart. Like, 
champions fall apart on the back nine of the Masters on Sunday. And the fact that he could, like, keep it in the road the way that he could until the until the 18th hole, where he had just, like, the tiniest little hiccup. No big. But, man, that guy. So I also talked. And he also talking- bogeyed the first two holes on Sunday. So, you know, he dug himself a hole, and you could see – I mean, all of a sudden, his lead went from, I think, five to start the day to being two, uh, three. I mean, it was, I, I think that was the, you know, steady the ship, next couple of holes. I think, he, oh, that's what it was. He chipped in on three for birdie. And all of a sudden, it was like, I'm sure all the nerves just kind of went away. I mean, not all the nerves went away, but the, the excess nerves that were making him a little bit more compromised went away. Could you give us an example of what you would have said to him Sunday morning if you were, you were his coach? So my work is really not about like kind of last minute details. I think if your preparation requires, you know, the thing that is going to, you know, kind of get you over the hump uh, in those key moments, then we have not prepared well. Um, You know, you need to have kind of a foundation for your mentality and understanding of the kinds of emotions that are going to affect you. And so it really is not going to be like kind of some generic, you know, rah, rah, you know, go get them kind of thing. It's going to be an extension of everything that we've worked on. So I'll, I will give you a, a more specific example. Um, Doug Gim is a client of mine. Um, I was with him at the Players Championship this year, and he was in the last group. And, and you know, I, obviously nervous, but there's uh, an understanding that we have of each other. And, yeah, just keep him loose while he's warming up and find a little uh, tidbit before he goes to play and, Good luck because I can't do anything else. I mean, it's really it's on them, right? I mean, that that's that's it, right? As a coach, I can't be with traders, poker players, golfers. You know, I mean, actually, technically, the poker players. I've you know, the World Series of Poker, uh, main event, final table. Um, you know, I've been on the rail with players, kind of at that, uh, you know, kind of high stakes moment. And so, yes, in that spot, they can kind of step back, and we can have a conversation that and that has occurred. But in most other situations, right, it's they're on their own. So we have to really do our, our due diligence well in advance and spend a lot of time really understanding the the ways in which they perform at their best and the ways in which they're going to perform at their worst. You know, high level competition in, in any domain, masters included, is first and foremost a battle of how strong you are where you're weak. Right? Everybody has weaknesses. And so the, the, the question is, how strong are your weaknesses at that point? And Scotty's was obviously very strong. And he's a player that has tended to rely on a, a bit of momentum. And, you know, having won three out of the prior five events and becoming number one player in the world. Now, people think that he kind of came out of nowhere. But, look, you don't, you don't become number one after winning three tournaments because you weren't anyway. I mean, he was in the top 30 in the world. So this guy had been steadily climbing and he was a stud in college. This is not surprising to anybody that kind of know him. Maybe the, the speed at which it happened could be surprising. Sure. But, you know, obviously very, very strong where he's weak. I talk, I tell the story all the time. The listeners are like, yeah, Blaine, we've heard the story, but I had dinner with someone who was an Olympian mogul skier and then now he coaches Olympian mogul skiers. And he said that the thing that separates 
naturally good athletes, naturally good mogul skiers from competitors, our competitors are obsessed with their weaknesses and building up those weaknesses. And they may not be the best natural mogul skier out there. And it just really stuck with me. I probably say it every other episode. To, <laughs> to In trading, like, anyone can hit a home run. Literally anyone. But if you can't build up those... Hardiness. Parts. Yeah. 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 You, I mean, that, that's, that's it, right? When, when the going get, gets tough, what happens, right? Do you break down? Do you overreact? Do you bleed sl- a slow death? Do you just blow up? Uh, or are you able to, uh, I think the optimal is being able to recognize that while you are losing or in a drawdown, that you're actually not making decisions in a fundamentally different way. And to do that is really hard. You have to spend time to really understand what your decision-making process looks like in general, and then how it will depart and start to break down under extreme stress. And and that decision-making process as a trader, as a poker player, as an esport athlete, to me is equal to a golfer's golf swing, right? There's a technique to it. And, you know, in golf, it's very common to understand that stress and pressure breaks down your swing in the places where it's weak. However, right, the more well-trained it is and the stronger those weaknesses become, right, the, the integrity in your technique becomes a buffer against that stress. And so traders can benefit from training their decision-making process, becoming a, more precisely aware of the nuances in which uh, it exists in optimal form and training that actively pushing it right even when they may not necessarily be making decisions quote unquote like entering a position but when they're uh making decisions and deciding not to get in uh right, the 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 training effect that can occur really becomes a buffer against the stress when you know the the market is not going to reward you for uh your edge totally totally so how would you like to do this? Would you like to sort of walk me through any, I just would like to hear from you. I don't even know exactly the right questions to ask. You could walk <laughs> me through your philosophy or if you wanted to do like more of a personal thing with either me or Ellis, we could do that. I'm open to anything you can teach us. I want to learn. Yeah. So I can, I can do both. Um, I mean, I think the, the first thing is that uh, what separates my methodology, I think generally, uh, also in trading, is that I have a system. Um, I'm not just doling out advice, right? This is not stock picking from a mental standpoint, right? You as a trader have a system, you have a strategy that you develop based on that system. And the kind of emotional, mental side of the game uh, has, in my mind, demanded that. And that is kind of what's been missing. Back in November, I did some research had a number of different kind of trading entities get involved. So we got a pretty decent, uh, you know, kind of stratified sample. Um, 1,200 traders from around the world, uh, 11% female, uh, 60% outside of the U.S., uh, sorry, 40% outside of the U.S., and broad range of ages from, you know, 20 to 75. Uh, the effect that I'm going to describe held up across all demographics, right? Uh, 95, 96% of traders knew the value of psychology. They could recognize their emotions were affecting their decision-making 
in real time and only 34% believe that they had a concrete strategy for actually being able to manage their emotions. So on the one side, I think this is an incredible uh, feat as an industry and all of the other trading psychologists that have been, you know, kind of before me, the Steenbargers and uh, Mark Douglas of the world uh, have educated the community. And so, yeah, kind of game over. Everybody knows this, this, this matters, but like, what are you doing about it? And so I have great respect for, for Mark's uh, Douglas's book. Um, and especially as a primer to kind of understanding the nuances of trading, which is like poker, very different from most other competitive environments. And so if you don't really understand kind of the rules of the game, you're going to get run over and your mentality is going to suffer just because you're fighting up against something that you don't fully understand. So, but then, then the question becomes, right? So if that advice doesn't sort of solve your greed and your FOMO and your anger and your confidence issues and the discipline issues and all the rest of it, like then, then, then what? And so the then what in my world is you need a system. And so my system has three, call it technically four steps to it. Um, and there's kind of basic uh, rules of how the mind and how the brain works that need to be understood in order for the system uh, to actually work for you. And when you kind of go through all of this, it starts to kind of uh, throw water on some of the myths that, that have kind of propagated not, not just the trading world, but also the performance world. So um, if you want me to kind of walk through, walk you through the steps generally, I can. <laughs> yes. Uh, That'd be great. This episode is sponsored by Aries, the newest trading broker offering both mobile and desktop trading. The app is built for retail traders by retail traders, and they welcome user feedback. Do you ever nail the entry on a trade but can't get filled? You won't need to worry about that anymore because they are a self-clearing brokerage direct to exchange with TradeStation, and they are much faster than other brokerages that route through a clearinghouse. Aries is a multi-asset platform. You are able to trade stocks, options, futures, index options, crypto, and micros. You are also able to buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrencies. Lastly, earn up to 5% interest on eligible crypto assets with no lockups. Aries has partners and offers many free tools such as Advanced Charting, TradingView with unlimited charting and indicators, free options flow, dark pool data, and many more tools on their roadmap to come. This is on average a $50 to $100 per month value, all for free. Finally, you can withdraw and deposit actual crypto and transfer to the U.S. dollar and use it to trade any trading assets offered. Aries is the first brokerage to offer this. Please click the link in our bio or go to www.tradearies.com slash pennylane to sign up for an account today. Okay, yes, Jared, please walk us through the steps. Okay, you got it. Uh, so step number one uh, is called mapping your pattern. And I framed it that way because when we start to look at the data that exists around your biggest trading mistakes, right, we can look at the specific information to create a map that is going to recognize the steady escalation that will generally occur prior to it. It does not help you to know after the fact that you just made a mistake. I mean, it's just like seeing a trade uh, in hindsight doesn't really pay very well. So you have to have the foresight to understand what's coming. And so as traders, you are incredibly skilled at recognizing patterns in the market and finding opportunity. And so we need to do the exact same thing around your biggest trading mistakes. And so what we're looking for are the triggers. What is going to cause your mentality or your emotions to begin to deviate from what is optimal? 
what are the thoughts that come up around that time? Specific thoughts that you have or things that you would say out loud. What are the emotions that you're feeling at that time? What are the bodily sensations, whether it's increased heart rate or sweat or tension in your hands? What are the actions that, you know, kind of may go along with this uh, opening up uh, several different charts that you would normally hyper-focusing on P&L, uh, hyper-focusing on price action? What are the specific changes in your decision-making process that would occur then? What are the changes that in your perception of the market? And if you start to actually capture that data around the escalation of your emotions or kind of in the, in the run-up to uh, your, your mistakes, you will see that these patterns happen again and again and again. And yes, of course, there's going to be some individual variation, you know, kind of situation to situation. But what that does is give you the vision to be able to act prior to the point when your emotions start to shut down higher brain function. Okay, so this is kind of the first rule that is essential for people to understand. If you don't understand this rule, you are going to make a lot of mistakes and you're going to create a lot more emotional volatility uh, than is necessary, okay? So I call it the malfunctioning mind. Uh, a lot of people will know this as the fight or flight mechanism, but the reason I don't love that term is because it sounds a bit too kind of binary, right? Really what we're looking for is the sort of steady escalation of your emotions, almost like kind of turning up the volume. Right. Sometimes the volume gets just gets jacked up and you go from, you know, calm to, you know, uh, revenge trading in, in minutes. Uh, but most often uh, there's a steady escalation. And, and so when that escalation kind of reaches this sort of threshold, your mind will be compromised. And as it continues to rise, the emotional system will override higher brain functions, which include thinking and planning and decision making right, that the, the voice in your head will get, will sort of kind of lose potency. Uh, and so when that happens, you also lose the ability to control your emotions. So make sure everybody gets this right. The emotional system has the power to shut down or diminish the part of the brain responsible for controlling emotions. So it's a, it's a sadistic system. And if you're not working within the, 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 the boundaries and the rules of that system, you get into a spot which many, many traders and many athletes end up in, which is aware of what's happening, but unable to do anything about it. And so on a scale of zero to 100, we're talking about like your emotional level is about 80. Okay, so 50 is optimal, right? You need emotions to power the brain and be at your best. When people are in the zone, when you are at your, at your best, there's a lot of emotion behind you. There's a lot of energy and intensity behind you. So 50 is optimal around, you know, 75 or 80, you will be aware of what's happening, but kind of paralyzed and, and unable to stop it. And that is incredibly infuriating. It's incredibly anxiety provoking. You feel like you should be in control. You feel like you're self-sabotaging yourself. And none of that is true. You are just emotional enough to have the part of the brain that would normally be able to start to control or correct your emotions is effectively kind of in a straitjacket. And so the way to solve for this, right, is to recognize when your emotions are beginning to escalate and you take action then. Now, the taking action uh, is really kind of dependent on your understanding of the cause. So if we're in agreement that emotions are not bad and that we can use emotions as a signal, what the heck are they signaling? So broadly speaking, emotions can be used for intuition. Emotions can signal weaknesses in your strategy. 
Emotions can signal underlying flaws or biases or illusions or wishes that you have in the recesses of your mind. And of course they can signal personal stuff, but we're not going to get into that. But for the most part, it's an illusion of control, an illusion of emotional control, high expectations, hindsight bias, confirmation bias, hating mistakes, hating to lose. These are examples, expecting yourself to make money every day. These are examples of the underlying kind of flaws or biases that run in the background of our mind and they get exposed and you can recognize that they are present when your emotions have risen too high. So you have to do this sort of analysis to break out and understand the underlying cause of your emotions. You can't just do battle against them, right? Because the battling is what doesn't work. You're trying to control it. No, we're actually trying to correct the cause of that excessive emotional volatility, which is step two, getting to the root of the problem, right? If you don't get to the root of the problem, it's much like, like a weed, right? The sucker is going to just keep growing back. And, you know, some people try to plant flowers as a way of kind of uh, counteracting those weeds, but then you just end up with a garden that looks like crap because it's full of weeds and flowers, right? We want to actually pull those roots out. And in order to do that permanently, step three is correcting the problem. It's weaponizing your mind, preparing it like you would like strengthen the body to act in those moments with precision because you understand the cause. You have predetermined, pre-selected uh, points of logic and things that you're kind of injecting into those moments. And when you do that regularly and frequently, much like you train anything else, you begin to upgrade your mentality and you begin to reshape the way that you, that you react to those moments. Amazing. Amazing. That was fantastic. Amazing. Now, how would you start? So, so say we're like, we're, we're new clients, Penny and I, right? How would you start kind of mapping that first step? Which is just taking notes at the end of the day, like, hey, you know, like, you know, for example, today, you know, I took a huge loss on spy calls, you know, whatever, because I was already down big on the day and I just wanted to make it back. Would you start almost writing down those moments and keeping track to almost build that web of, would you call it the mapping pattern? Yeah. To almost build that, build, build that web of triggers in order to kind of work on step one. Is that? Yes, exactly. So um, on my website, jaredtendler.com, I have a kind of resource tab with a lot of free worksheets. And one of those worksheets is called a data collection sheet. Awesome. Right? And it has everything I already mentioned, right? I mean, you could, you don't need the sheet, just open up an Excel file, open up a Word doc, and just list out all the things I mentioned, right? What's the situation? What's the trigger? Thoughts, emotions, behaviors, actions, changes in decision-making, changes in perception of the market or your opportunities or your positions. Um, and then actually kind of list out what the mistake is itself. And so as, you know, you can have these things open during the trading day and just be taking notes regularly. I, I wouldn't suggest doing it at the end of the day, unless you're a scalper and you can't, you don't have the, don't have the time. But most traders have little pockets, little windows of time where they can be tracking and charting what's going on emotionally. And it's also important to be detailing out what is optimal, right? It's, it's very easy to focus on when things are wrong, but when you focus on what is optimal, it's actually easier to identify the deviation. And those subtleties really, really matter for the reasons I already mentioned. So yeah, take notes at the end of the day, consolidate your notes, do this for several days, a week, 10 days, look at your notes, and then begin to create the map where you're scaling the intensity from level one to level 10, let's say for fear or for anger, right? Level one would be minimal, barely noticeable, right? You have thoughts of looking at P&L. Uh, for greed, you have thoughts of uh, what, what the utility of the money could, could mean for you. 
but you haven't actually made a mistake yet. It's just the first signal that the, a problem is on the horizon if you don't do something, because if you take more losses, if you win more money, right? Whatever is going to sort of trigger an escalation of emotion, it is going to happen because these are very well-worn patterns. I mean, people don't necessarily think about it this way, but uh, I think it's fairly accurate. Everything that you'd classify as a mistake, you are good at. <laughs> you are very good at yeah. making those mistakes. So yeah, they're going to keep happening again and again and again until you become the force to actually drive the change. I really like the way you phrased that. Yeah, you, if some people are just really good at making mistakes, but it means they're really good at it. That was a great way to yeah. look at it. Yeah. But it's not a bad thing, right? Because you know, now we move on the on the step two. We can really kind of reflect and, and dive deep on those issues and strengthen that by using our emotions. You're saying. Yeah, yeah, because the emotions are not a problem, right? The prob they're causing problems. Okay. Right? But they're not the problem, right? So if you're walking down the street and you feel pain, you know, like you'd probably want to find out why, right? Is it maybe because there's a freaking rock in your shoe? Right? So is the pain the problem? No, it's the rock. Get the freaking rock out of your shoe. So what's the pain, right? The pain points are the emotions, are the thoughts, are the negative thoughts, are the, the overreactions you have. They're the forced entries. They're the premature exits. Those are the pain points. But what's the cause, right? The cause is, all right, well, um, I uh, have excessive conviction uh, because I've been on a bit of a rush here and, uh, you know, eight, eight straight days of winning, beginning to think I've got this thing licked. And yeah, uh, that is going to lead to some loose parameters and uh, some of your entries. And all of a sudden now you're in a position uh, that's going sideways. Uh, you double your position trying to uh, <laughs> average uh, down. And now all of a sudden you take a massive loss and wipe out all those uh, eight days of gains. All right. So uh, what's the cause of that? The cause is the deviation uh, that was caused by you thinking that you either had control of the market uh, you were expecting to make money. Uh, the, the the expectancy uh, can easily kind of creep up. That's that's the rock. That's what you're trying to identify. And once you identify it, that's what you are targeting. You're not targeting the greed on the surface. You're not targeting the FOMO on the surface. Because again, that's like trying to pull the weed out without getting the roots. Interesting way to look at things. That's a whole... I, I never looked at things like that in my life. <laughs> that was good. So you're saying you're targeting the like i'm trying to see how i phrase this you're targeting the emotion of being on like a on like a, a win like on a bunch of wins and now you're oversizing and that's how you're going to come down sideways or what are you targeting the situation you just spoke of you're targeting the flaw you're targeting the flaw yeah so you've got to go through a process to actually investigate and understand and uncover what is actually at the root of these things and it's you know it's not easy to do right yeah. but if you start asking yourself why, right? Why am I feeling pain? Why am I getting emotional in this spot? Why am I making these decisions? Because most traders, at least uh, certainly ones that I've been around, they will just slough off a bad day. Uh, they'll go drinking, they'll go out, uh, they'll go for a workout, and they will just try to like put it out of their minds. And then tomorrow's a new day. And right, but nothing's changed. The patterns are there, it takes years to sort of naturally select out these things and just kind of learn through trial by fire. And, and it just, it's just slow and inefficient and many traders won't make it right. The, the 20, 30 year vets, I mean, they, they, 
All that stuff has been cleaned out. But <laughs> how many people have failed trying to get to that point? Because they couldn't hack it. So this is a way of kind of hacking into your mind to try to understand what are the flaws, the illusions, the biases, the wish. Look, there's a lot of traders, certainly ones that have been maybe kind of two or three years in, who still have the wish that they could make easy money. And so what does the wish of making easy money translate into? Well, they're going to get sucked into a lot of FOMO and greed, and they're going to get really pissed off when they lose money and they don't know what the hell they're doing. So that wish is the problem. That is what you are targeting and trying to correct in those moments where your emotions are beginning to rise. And it's, again, it's, it's almost like a, like a ninja sort of side door, right? You're not battling the emotion because that's a losing battle. You are going to get run over because emotions have the power to shut down the part of the brain that is going to fight. It's like bringing a water gun to, to a gunfight. So sure. you got you got to play a different game. For sure. Um, we are sorry, now, I, I should okay. say real quick, I should say that the, the mental game of trading is designed to help you to do the mapping and to help you to dig out what your flaws are. And I give maybe 30 examples of the, some of the most common flaws. So if anybody is now kind of piqued their interest and kind of problem solving in the way I'm describing that the book is really your, your resource. Fantastic. We will link to that in the show notes. I'm going to buy it after this. <laughs> totally. Me too. Me too. In the cart. Okay. As I do on every podcast, I want to ask for some personal advice or your opinion on something. So I am kind of on a winning streak and I uh, am more afraid now than I was through all my bad trading. Um that I'm gonna like blow it up somehow because it's been long enough that like every single day I'll text my friends and I'm like, is today the day? And I'm just like, are we gonna go out in some kind of like blaze of glory? Even though I've taken like all of these, I've been doing this thing where I've been trading just one stock and traded and made $50 a day for two weeks and then a hundred dollars a day for two weeks and then $150 a day for two weeks. And now I'm at a thousand dollars and I'm doing it fairly consistently or yes. And part of me is like, we've sort of worked that muscle of what it feels like to be consistent, but I'm really terrified. So well, let me, let's uh, ask a few questions here. Cause there could be a okay. lot of things. Okay. Um, have you blown up before? Um, I have never blown up to the point where the balance is zero, but I've blown up to the point where I've had to add a lot of money back into the account. So we could say yes, but it's, yeah. yeah. So uh, if you were to think back to one of those situations, does one jump to mind? Yes, I had a terrible rock bottom situation worst thing that's ever happened to me in trading and thus was born this $50 a day challenge. Okay. So, and so when you think about that now, uh -huh. if you were to just focus on it, do you feel any emotion just thinking about it, even though it's happened? Oh, for sure. It was horrible. Okay. So, uh, we would classify this as trading trauma. Okay. Okay. And the problem with what you're experiencing is that that emotion is still raw and it will get triggered 
if there is a threat that you might revert back to doing that again, which is seemingly what's happening now. Okay. okay. So that trauma was caused by taking someone else's play and losing a lot of money. So I do have a fairly st- or a very, very strict, uh, like, I don't, I can't do that anymore because I have, it's a lot easier for me to lose taking my own. It's actually absolutely fine for me to lose taking my own place. Um, So, so uh, imagine you have an injury to your shoulder uh, and the injury didn't require surgery, uh, never went to PT. And so your body has created scar tissue to prevent you from kind of re-injuring that spot. That's basically what you're describing. Now, if you want to play professional golf, you want to use that muscle in a dynamic, highly functional, strength-oriented way, uh, you need to fix the injury. And you need to break apart the scar tissue and allow your body to heal properly. And that's what hasn't happened yet. So you're doing what most people do in situations like this where they've had something that was significantly emotional and their mind or their body or their system is still holding on to that emotion, right? You need to actually go in and massage out the emotion. You can't just block it out with a better strategy. Now, I'm not saying that a better strategy is bad, right? It's kudos to you to figuring that out. But to get to the level that you are describing that you want to, uh, you need to actually like forgive yourself, understand the real mistakes that were made, there may be some flaws in there, right? So in situations like this, I'm not making uh, assumptions about you, but generally speaking, um, there's lots of people that have high expectations of themselves. And so when they fail, uh, they're either not used to it, they're expecting that they would, that wouldn't have occurred, their confidence wasn't strong enough to begin with. And so a situation like that really throws a wrench into their sort of uh, view of themselves or view of themselves as a trader. And so there's a lot of kind of flaws that could have primed you or really many traders to have a severe overreaction to a situation like that. And so, again, the idea is dig into the memory, start writing about what are you still holding on to? Focus on the most painful parts, because like when you're getting a massage to break through scar tissue, there's not a single thing that is fun about it. But that's that's what's required. So, so part A for my advice for you is to do that, right? You've got to actually do that introspective work and, and massage out the old emotion that's still, that you're still holding on to. Uh, part B is my, my suspicion. So for a lot of traders, athletes as well, who are doing very, very well, they reach a point where, it's, where their results are actually greater than their confidence. And the way I would kind of describe this to you is to build a bigger pyramid, you have to build a bigger base. And so right now, it probably feels as though your base is sort of too small relative to the size that you're kind of trying to carry. So how are you going to build out your confidence? Number one, you can go back into your personal history, go back into your trading history and just reinforce the skills you've acquired the experience that you have, the accomplishments uh, that you've attained, how did you do it? What did you? What have you learned? Like really, kind of pour into detail because so many people, when they're only focused on making progress, really lose sight of a lot of that stuff. 
And it, it's, it's not like a, um, so let me just back up for a second. Confidence is just perception. Okay. <laughs> there are many new traders who are more confident than 30 year vets. So confidence is not uh, reality in terms of your skill set. It's your perception of your skill set. And so for many traders who have this sort of artificially constricted confidence, they have undervalued what they've accomplished. They've undervalued what their skills are. Uh, and so by kind of reconciling that perception, you can remove kind of this like David Copperfield, David Blaine magic trick where you make you make it feel like your base is smaller than it is. When in fact, actually the pyramid, right, the base is actually very, very strong and it is strong enough to support the, the results that you're having. But you need to know what those are to reconcile that perceptual gap. Interesting. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So again, it's, it's going to take some work to do. Um, and so, so what I would suggest is as like a, a five, 15 minute, you know, a couple times a day task. And any time that you then begin to feel the fear, you're injecting some of the things that you found, right? Okay. I can handle this loss. I can handle losses made with good decision-making uh, because look at all of what I've accomplished, right? A loss is not going to take that away. Sometimes some of that fear is almost like you're going to lose uh, the momentum that you've built up, mm -hmm. but the momentum is, is in my mind, sorry, relying on momentum is a bit weak. It's, it's undervaluing the stability that you've attained through the skills that you have and, and really being able to understand what those skills are. That is your weapon. And if your weapon doesn't produce profit today, but you used it correctly, cool. That's, that's just the game that you have signed up for. And so if you're just looking for wins to continue to kind of pad this confidence, you're actually not building confidence. You're now, you're now become dependent on winning money to secure that confidence. And it's, it's a very weak position to be in. You want your confidence to be based on your skills and your experience and your track record. When that happens, it's almost like your bones get stronger and you're able to just kind of stand on solid ground rather than feeling like you're standing on a, on a, on a little, uh, you know, canoe, uh, or a rowboat in, in the open ocean. I talk a lot about, I'm also a painter and I always talk about the power that came from that took, it took me 30 years to build that career and the power that came from being able to say, I'm a painter. Like I had all this shame. I'm an artist and I like to paint. And like, I was always sort of hiding behind that. And then when I was able to say like, I'm a painter, this is how much my paintings cost this like really, really own that it became something that I just was and that no one could take away from me, which is very similar to like imposter syndrome. Like I'm building this new trading career from a baby. So I'm not where I am in the art career, but I, you know, I sort of like want to be there more quickly. Um, but sort of stepping into the like, oh, I did, I did a really good trade there. And I did it because I learned this, this, and this sort of like building, like you're saying that base in order to step into like, I made that trade because I knew what I was doing versus like, oh, I just got lucky. And I just have to keep getting lucky and keep, you know, that's seems like a leaning tower. 
Yeah, so I, I want to kind of call out the imposter syndrome. Um, so if you went to the doctor and the doctor said you had a flu, what's the cause? A virus. Correct. What's the cause of imposter syndrome? See, that, that's the question most people with imposter syndrome don't ask. And it's an important one to ask because it's a kind of aggregate of a bunch of symptoms or signals that define the problem, but it's not the cause. Okay. Imposter syndrome is a weakness in confidence. You have artificially low confidence to take for it to take 30 years for you to define yourself as a painter suggests, right? That your standards are crazy high. Sure. So what happens when your standards are crazy high? You do not uh, measure yourself properly on a day to day basis. And so what's the accumulation of that over time? You have a big perceptual gap between your actual skills and the saleability, the value of those skills in, in the open market. And totally. so that is what imposter syndrome is, right? And then that at least that's one example of what can cause it. There's lots of examples of what can cause imposter syndrome. But the point is, right, you have to do the introspective work to understand what is causing it, not kind of just get sucked into it. So it makes sense why you'd want to kind of get to that point faster in trading because it took probably five to six times longer than was, than was deserved. And you know that, but you don't know how to fix it. And that's, that's what the system, that's what my system is, you know, designed to do. Fantastic. God, th I mean, thank you just for saying that back to me. That, yeah. You're welcome. Yeah, good. So do the work. I mean, it's, it's not going to happen. I mean, you can have some kind of insight, some aha moments that'll come, but that's just the beginning. This is about reshaping the way that you are interacting with yourself, the way that you see yourself, the way that your confidence actually forms. And in a way you've been starving yourself over years, right? Starving yourself of the validation and the feedback that would confirm what you've actually attained. And so to correct it is not like, you, it's not, you can't eat food for a month in one sitting. Right. So right, think, of, right, right. think of the work I'm describing, like eating food. You could even do it every time you eat. Take a couple minutes and feed yourself some validation, confirmation, pride, satisfaction for what you've done in the past as a trader, as a painter, uh, and any other places where you think you're undervaluing yourself. For sure. it's. Um, I even did it this week with the podcast. I went out to dinner with some friends and they were nice enough to be like, so how's the podcast going? And I was like, oh, it's fine. It's just like this small thing that I do. Like, doesn't matter. Da, 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 da. And then I finished saying it and was like, no, like, why, why would I have so much trouble just being like, the podcast is amazing. Like I'm doing a great job, but that's so, Hard thing so, to say. So what, you just, what you just said is actually uh, really, really important. Why? Right. My guess for you, like many, many people, it's a rhetorical question. You're not actually sitting down and saying, huh, why am I reacting that way? But that's what you have to do. There's a reason for it. It's not, you're not crazy. There's nothing irrational or illogical and there's no self-sabotage. Self-sabotage is such a BS term, right? It should be wiped from the face of this planet. Okay. Because the people that use it think that they are in control, think that they are purposefully undermining and sabotaging their actions. But the reality is they're not good enough to do that. True sabotage requires a lot of skill. This is 
you have underlying patterns, you have underlying flaws, biases, illusions, etc., that are the thing that is tripping you up. You're not in control of this. You have to understand what is actually at the root of the issue. Then you can take control of it. Then you can actually reshape your mind to provide you the perspective and the balance, uh, the performance, the precision that you're, you're after. Amazing. Alice, you had a question. So I was wondering the, so anyone can, you know, hit a golf ball or as you mentioned, do esports and poker and everything like that. What do you think is the single thing that divides, divides like an amateur from a pro? Do you think it's physical? I mean, obviously some genetic stuff, but you think, what do you think more of the mental game plays a part in it? I, I think it's too simplistic to bring it down to one thing. I mean, I think really? that's, yeah, I mean, look, we're not in the, um, you know, 1870s with baseball or golf. I mean, this is like, these are highly competitive industries with thousands of people competing and working to improve themselves. So to sort of try to simplify it down to one thing, I actually think is, you know, kind of part of the thing that many people who are not professionals are thinking, like you said it before, right? <laughs> the, the, the professionals who you know, they are ruthless at identifying their weaknesses when, you know, the people that are kind of in the middle who are aspiring to be great are, they detest their weaknesses and they want to ignore them. They want to just only focus on their strengths. It's like that perspective is a big part of the problem. So to think that we could simplify elite performance down to one thing is I think uh, a bit just too simplistic. So it all matters. And it all matters at different points and in different stages and in different ways, you know. So you take you take a guy like uh, uh, like Scotty Schiffler, and yeah. So is it mental? Is it technical? Is it physical? Is it strategic? Look, PJ Tour players now have nutritionists, data analysts, physio. They have trainers. They've got swing coaches. Some of them have short game or putting coaches. They've got somebody like me. They've got agents and managers. I mean, it is a team sport now. So quality of the advice is a huge component. Uh, I heard some stories about Tiger uh, recently that, you know, one of, the, one of the weapons that Tiger used was that he would do all of his practice, all of the real work before he would get to a tournament. So when he would get to a tournament, you know, you'd see all the other players on the putting green or on the driving range, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, there with their swing instructor, they're like doing drills. And effectively, like if you're doing drills, you are showing to the, the other, your, your competitors what you're doing. And so Tiger would show up and he would never show his hand. So he would just dominate and nobody had a clue as to what he was doing in order to do that. So the psychological warfare that's associated with that, but it was also informational warfare. So yeah, knowledge is power and having quality knowledge is power. Uh, so, you know, I've had a number of clients over the years who wanted to go from being a poker player who was interested in psychology to being in my role. And they all failed for reasons that I was very predictable was because it's very different to know what works for you and, and, and being able to kind of diagnostically analyze lots of different random people in a way that is most effective for them. Two very, very different things. So like, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal here, but I am saying that 
I know I understand things that other people don't. And because of that, I have an edge in the market. That's why I have clients in 45 countries and, you know, a variety of different professions. So what does it take to be at an elite level? It takes the right mentality. It takes the right information. It takes, yes, you do need talent. You also need to have a tremendous amount of passion and love and interest in the thing that you're doing, because in order for you to be great, you have to do a shit ton of work. And who is going to do a shit ton of work? Somebody that hates trading or hates poker? Of course not. It's the people that love it and are passionate about every little nuance about it, and they cannot get enough. They oftentimes are very competitive. So there's a lot of these, I think, components of what makes somebody great. But, you know, genetics and talent, 100% are a part of it, right? Michael Phelps had a, has the same leg length at 6'4", I think, as uh, like an elite runner who was, I think, 5'9", five, 5'7". Five, Right, he had the the perfect body to swim fast like he did, uh, and so it's no surprise. But he also had to have a lot of these other dimensions. I mean, his work ethic was insane. I think I heard something that he would train from like eight a.m., nine a.m. to two o'clock. He'd go home, he'd eat, he would sleep for two or three hours, and then he'd go back in the pool. And he did this seven days a week for two years. I mean, that's what it takes. Well put, well put. I was just curious because uh, I told some of my friends I was speaking with you and they want me to ask you that. So that was a good one. Another follow-up question that would be, do you think since like psychology and everything has been more and more important of, you know, people understand, like mental health and everything, do you think that's increasing? Is it, I don't know how to put it. Do you think that's increasing performance, I guess I could say, is understanding the mind more so than the body? I think that's probably the first question I should have asked. Do you think just another tool in the tool belt? It's another tool in the tool belt. I mean, I think what, what you, you know, you see executive coaches and Fortune 500 companies has been around for a long time, but now it's starting to trickle down to, you know, we'll call them, uh, you know, everyday employees. Why? Because when you're looking for, you know, greater advantages from a performance standpoint, right? People want to be good at their job. People want to be good at what they do. And when they're not, or when they're interpersonal dynamics and there's whole different, you know, elements to it, right? I, I think what the the psychological the mental dimension like adds a component that's been missing and can oftentimes be kind of the catalyst to actually making some fundamental changes from an organizational perspective but that organizational change comes because you have a bunch of other you know individuals who understand how to be better people that then become better uh, employees and better uh, at their job so yeah it's it's everywhere now and it's going to it the trend is going to continue to go in that direction however I, I, I do caution people because at the end of the day, the mind can only be a catalyst to access your skills and your competencies. Right? I can't, I mean, the Dalai Lama is a terrible golfer. I mean, mentally stronger than almost everybody on this planet, we would yep. assume. And yet, why, he, why, why is he not on tour? Why is he not a billionaire investor? Because <laughs> he doesn't have the freaking skills. Could he learn them faster than somebody that was a, a basket case? Of course. But you, you have to have skills in any of these games. So when I work with newer traders and they come to me and saying they've got you know, all these emotional issues, well, we first kind of look at the personal issues that are contributing to that because they're not good enough for us to, to understand where their kind of mental game issues are 
within trading. They don't have enough experience. They don't have enough skill yet in order to define that line yet. So at the end of the day, you need to be a skilled trader first. And yes, along the way, you can, you know, kind of work on your mental game. But, you know, let's say it's the game is 90% mental, sorry, 90% technical, 10% mental when you're first starting out. And then at some point, it's going to maybe even out as, you know, you gain enough skill, but realize that, you know, you're making a bunch of mistakes. And so you focus more on your mentality. And then you reach certain echelons. It's like, all right, I've got this thing pretty well in command. The fine tuning is mostly mental. And so, yeah, people say, all right, well, would it, how, how would you rank the percentages? It's like it changes. Changes based on the person, changes in the situation, changes on their level of experience. So, again, we're not looking for one-size-fits-all answers. It's, it's a dynamic, right? And, you, and, and the more that you understand the complexity of that dynamic, the easier it is to make decisions on, you know, kind of which, which lever to pull to make you better. You're Jared. I love you, man. <laughs> I learned so much. You have no idea. I literally have a notepad. Like I wrote your whole system out, everything. Like I'm going crazy right now. I That's could awesome. tell you were taking a lot of notes, Ellis. I, I know. Yeah. Well, I'm quiet. The way you were yeah. hearkening back to, yeah, it's good no. co-hosting you're doing there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. This is, uh, I guess we didn't touch on the third part of your plan. Now that I think about it, yeah, so, it's, a, it's correcting your problem. Oh, so the, the fourth one that's maybe a little bit of an asterisk is uh, rinse and repeat. Uh, I mean, like you, you are never going to solve the mental game. That's why I like that term because it implies that it's a game, right? We're not playing. We're not playing tic tac toe here, right? This is chess. So the mind is is complicated, and as you continue to progress, you will always have weaknesses, and so it's your job to always be looking out for them and understanding them. And yeah, you're going to find pockets of time where. They're going to be really strong. You're not going to have to worry about them for very much. But if you get into a mode where you're like, oh, I, I'm, I'm good, you're going to get whacked at some point pretty soon. This is almost that constant evolution of, of practicing it, uh, almost like using your mind as a skill, right? Practicing it over and over and over again and just you know, recognizing your weaknesses. I they always talk about the 12-step program uh, for people in recovery. It's like it never really ends, right? You kind of get to the end, and then you restart, and then you just kind of go through it again. Yeah, so the, the difference here is that uh, you can solve your current issues. So if you're struggling with FOMO or greed and the way they, they show up, you can kind of graduate to the next level where those problems go away. But then maybe another set of problems are going to come up and they're going to be more kind of uh, situationally based. Uh, but the, but the, the thing is that you can use the system for solving whatever those future weaknesses or mistakes are. Right. The system doesn't change because it's based on just kind of basic brain science. Uh, the application of it is highly variable. There's lots of ways to do it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm currently involved in a, a, a five part masterclass. Uh, we're going into part three uh, on uh, Saturday. The, what is that day? Um, Saturday the 7th. Um, and, you know, the whole kind of concept, right, is this systematizing of uh, the way that you approach your problem solving and walking people through the system in very granular detail. But there's been a lot of individual variety of the materials that get sent back. So I've got all these tools that, that I kind of put together, but then people personalize it. And I love that because at the end of the day, it has to work for you. And so there's lots of ways to get it done. 
but you can't argue with the basics, right? There are foundational principles that you have to adhere to. And so the system that I've developed is organized around those foundational principles, which then just kind of makes the whole process more efficient. So yeah, you're never going to solve the inherent reality that we're always going to have weaknesses, but you can solve the things that you're currently struggling with. And once you do, cool, right? Maybe you're not going to know what those next pain points are, but you've got a system in place that is going to help you to identify it and work through it once you do. One last question. Where do you stand on meditating? Useful? Not useful. So I would consider it to be uh, a, a great tool for building awareness. Um, you know, that introspective ability is a skill and some people are stronger at it than others. And if you're not and you're like, I'm trying to map my pattern here. I'm trying to collect data, but I've got a, just a big blanks, blank page. Yeah, meditation could help. Uh, meditation is also good for developing kind of mental strength and the ability to focus, which is an important tool to be able to use to kind of correct your pattern, to, to kind of fight in real time and, and do battle against these, these patterns and eventually upgrade them. Um, but I think a lot of people overuse meditation as a answer, as a solution. Uh, and I think of it more as a tool, uh, not as a, a solution. I'm on what, day 95 of like this constant meditation affirmation as I sleep situation that I started. And it's a if it is, what, a band-aid? Band yeah. If nothing but a placebo effect though, it is sort of nice in the routine of like, I'm going to do this to try to sort of better myself. I've enjoyed that part of it. But a band-aid that, all right, so more work, more work that really needs to be done here. Yeah, yeah. listen, I mean, band-aids aren't bad. If you're bleeding, a band-aid is helpful. But if you start to rely on band-aids or like crutches or a cast, right, you, you over time start to create these limitations in the way that you function. And, you know, a lot of traders do this too, right? So you might force yourself to actually walk away from an active trade because if you're sitting there, you're going to meddle with it. Well, that's a Band-Aid. I mean, I'm not saying that right now you should rip that Band-Aid off and force yourself to sit down. No, you need to figure out why you are experiencing such overwhelming stress being in a position that you're going to meddle with it. That's what you have to do. And you can keep the Band-Aid on while you do that work. So by all means, continue to use the meditation in the way you've described. But the feeling like you're doing something productive is like, you're going to feel way more productive when you do the things that I've talked about because you're actively building that perception back so that again, eventually you won't need to use meditation and affirmations in that way. They will get internalized, right? If you need to use affirmations every single day, if you need to look at yourself in the mirror or play this like kind of loop, you're band-aiding a weakness. And again, band-aids are cool. In the short term, they're not cool in the long term. <sighs> um, I'm, I am going to let you go in a second, but I'm doing this other thing similar to the meditating that Ellis knows, everyone on the podcast knows about, that I quit drinking. And if I'm really honest with myself, I don't think that I have like that much of a drinking problem. It's kind of a mental toughness thing of like, well, if I can quit drinking, then I can be a badass trader. And I like continually tell myself that. Is that also a Band-Aid? Feels like could be a Band-Aid. 
I'm going to, I'm going to, um, throw it back on you. Why, why, why do you suspect that it is? Because I don't, I think that I struggle with a lot of things like anxiety and self-confidence and things like that, that the, those are the bad parts of the alcoholism. It's not really that I'm over drinking or like I quit drinking and I'm like, I don't need, like, I don't have a physical dependence on alcohol. I have a self-esteem problem probably. Yeah. Yeah. So there may be other facets to this, but at least what we've been able to ascertain so far is you have crazy high expectations. That's the problem. (laughs) So the answer is not to lower your expectations. That's the most common thing that I hear when I tell people that their expectations are the problem. I want your aspirations to be as high as they can be, but Mm -hmm. your aspirations and your goals imply learning. It implies a process that's going to have lots of ups and downs. Expectations could give a shit about all of that. They just want what they want. If they don't get what they want, you are going to suffer for it. Mm -hmm. And so eviscerate your expectations. They are useless. People use them for motivation, but the damage to confidence is so profound that it ultimately then affects motivation. So be motivated by your goals, be motivated by your aspirations, be motivated by the things that you want. That is a pure form of motivation. And then you, and then build confidence in the way that I've described so that you can actually then, if you want to, right, not need to develop this sort of artificial toughness, Uh right? You're trying to convince yourself that you're a good trader, that you have the chops for it. And the reality is that you already do. You just don't believe it. That's the fucking problem. And the expectations are the cause of that. Yes. But I also think I want to be like really good too. Cool. So I, right. So I have to like, well, I'm yeah. not really oh, so good keep, right so now. Keep, so, so there's keep, like keep a... using that, uh, that trick around drinking to strengthen your toughness. I'm, I'm down with you being a badass. Okay. Okay. But 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 you've got to have the strength in a real form so that that doesn't become a bandaid that ends up becoming a catalyst. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah, you melted my brain, dude. That's all I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to need like a couple hours to process what we just talked about. All right. So people who want to hear more from you, they buy your books, they go to your website, they contact you where? JaredTendler.com. Okay. Uh, kind of the central hub, information on my coaching, information on that five-part masterclass, which I mentioned, uh, which is not too late to sign up for. Uh, there's a lot of free downloadable worksheets. I have a free ebook on intuition for traders that is also there. Um, yeah, the books are available anywhere you buy books, in ebook, audiobook. I did the audio recording. Uh, and then uh, the soft cover is, yeah, anywhere you buy books. Luckily, I'm going to probably just attach myself to you now. So I don't think this is going to be the last time you hear from me. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for letting me know where to contact you. You're very welcome. <laughs> Thanks for your time today. This is fun. Thank you for your time. This is everything I wanted and more. <laughs> if you see Baba Watson around, let him know. You got it. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care.
By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the Penny Lane podcast makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional or financial advice. Unless specifically stated otherwise, the Penny Lane podcast does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. And information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. The third-party materials or content of any third-party site referenced in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of the Penny Lane podcast. The Penny Lane podcast assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third-party materials or on third-party sites referenced in this podcast or the compliance with applicable laws of such materials and or links referenced herein.